invite you to take your scriptures back to, uh, turn back to that Luke 19 passage we read a little earlier. My favorite book and movie series I've mentioned before is The Lord of the Rings by Tolkien. And one of my favorite scenes is the coronation of Aragorn, the king of Gondor, the heir of Isildur. Um, they, the people had waited a long time for someone to take the throne, and he finally did. He'd conquered all their foes in the War of the Rings. He had established peace and justice, and uh, he had triumphed. I think if you watch the scene for yourself, the power of it is in the appeal to something deeper that I think is in the psyche of all of us. If you've ever read it and you are a watcher of the movie, you'll know exactly what I mean uh, when Gandalf actually takes the crown and sits it on Aragorn's head, he's revealed to be a king who is worthy. And that's really what we're all looking for. Uh, we're looking for a, a king that is worthy of our loyalty, worthy of our allegiance, worthy of all of our worship. And that's just the kind of king that Aragorn was. And he wasn't just worthy of their lands. He wasn't just worthy of their property. He was worthy of the allegiance of their hearts. And so Gandalf puts the crown on his head and he states, now come the days of the king. If you read the gospels carefully, you'll find that every one of them has this story included, and that is Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. They all have it, um, and they all picture the same scene to some degree and that is the expectant people of Jerusalem, the Jewish people, are waiting for a king. They're waiting for a king who is worthy of their loyalty, worthy of their worship and allegiance. They want someone like Aragorn to come in and conquer all of their foes. They want peace, and they want it desperately. And so they're looking for Jesus, and as he comes into the city that day, it is kind of a coronation scene. It's almost as if Luke is saying, now behold the days of the king. In fact, in this little presentation in Luke's gospel about Jesus' coronation, he quotes a psalm, and that's 118, as Pastor Dave mentioned, but he also quotes um, a passage that he used earlier in our text. In verse 38 of 19, if you look there, it says, Here's what the people say, peace in heaven, glory in the highest. And if you read the entirety of Luke, you'll know. And that's what Luke, when he wrote it, expected to happen. When they read it in churches, they would read it, believe it or not, uh, not having a literate congregation in most places. Most people couldn't read and write. So the one in the congregation that could would stand and they would read Luke in its entirety from the beginning to the end nonstop. And if you did that, you would note that when the people shouted, peace in heaven, glory in the highest, that is strangely familiar to what the angels announced at the beginning of Jesus' life. And that was our Christmas rendition, which says, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. You see, what has happened at the beginning that angels announced that Jesus was king now is happening at the end of his life by people. Because here's the desire of God. Angels, people, everyone and everything that has ever been created has been designed to announce this one truth, that Jesus Christ is king. And so Aragorn, when he puts the, the crown is placed on his head, he said, let's rebuild the world that we may experience the days of peace. You can't help but read the text to know that King Jesus comes, and he comes to Jerusalem, and indeed comes to all of us this morning, and here's the offer that he makes so freely. 
The days of peace are upon us. We can have peace. In fact, I would tell you this morning that Jesus is the only king worthy, worthy of your loyalty and worthy of your worship. And when you find him as such, you will find the peace that he offers. Unfortunately, on that day, which the text makes obviously clear and plain to us, is they wanted a different kind of king and therefore a different kind of peace. The Latin term for it is Pax Romana. It was Roman peace. It was a peace that was enforced by violence and weapons and soldiers. And so on that day, although they're quoting scripture in Psalm 118 in verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They weren't just saying and declaring that Jesus was a king. You know, they were saying that he was the king. The king that was promised, the Davidic king, the messianic king, the ultimate king, the king that when he came, this was their expectation, when he came, he would set and make everything right in the world again. In fact, that little phrase, in the name of the Lord, is not just used on that phrase that we quoted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Three other times in Psalm 18, before that verse, in fact, in verses in a row, 10, 11, and 12, it says that same phrase in the name of the Lord. But listen to them. Here's the context of what they were expecting Jesus, who came in the name of the Lord, to do for them. Verse 10, all nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I will cut them off. Verse 11, surround me. Yes, they surround me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I will cut them off. Verse 12, surround me like bees, like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will cut them off. Every single time the phrase, in the name of the Lord, is used, it also says, I will cut them off. See, they wanted a king, and namely Jesus, to ride in, and here's what he, they wanted, this is what their expectation was. I want you to cut the Romans off. They're our enemies. They're the people who oppress us. It's why we're in slavery. And here's what the expectation was, that Jesus would come in the name of the Lord and he would cut off their enemies. But they didn't know. They didn't know. And understand what Isaiah 53 verse 8 says of Jesus. He was cut off from the land of the living. You see, they wanted Jesus to cut them off, the enemies of God but he would do it by being cut off himself. That wasn't part of the plan. That wasn't part of the expectation. See, he was a worthy king, and he's worthy of their lives. He was worthy of their adoration. He was worthy of all of it. But they didn't see it because they couldn't see him. Can I tell you, that's why he came to Jerusalem. More so, that's why he came into the world. In fact, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9 through 19, commentators call it the travel narrative because it catalogs all the events and things that took place on Jesus' last and final journey to Jerusalem to be that worthy king for them. And a little word marks all the major events. In fact, it's used, that little phrase, three times in our text. It's building to a crescendo. It's a climax. It's coming to the point where now we're going to find out in no uncertain terms who Jesus really is and why he came, why he's the worthy king. Chapter 9, verse 51 says this, when the days, here's the phrase, drew near that he would be taken up to God, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
Toward the end of that section, 1835, he drew near to Jericho. He drew near 1911 to Jerusalem and told them a parable. 1929, our text, going up to Jerusalem, he drew near. It says in chapter 1937, and as he drew near, 41, and as he drew near the city, see, it's building. He's getting closer and closer and closer to the number one reason why he came, why he was the worthy king, and that was to take their place, to be cut off so that they could be added into God's kingdom and family. You see, as Jesus rides in, it's the beginning of Passover week. Jerusalem usually had about 30 to 50,000 people. During Passover, they had 300,000 more than normal. And you can imagine, it was a very powerful time in their history. It was a very volatile time. It was a time of celebrating freedom. The emotions were high. The expectations were great. Jason Potterfield in his book, Fight Like Jesus, says this, this is why Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, left his coastal home in Caesarea and made his way to Jerusalem. Now imagine this. There are two processions that day. From the west side of the city is the procession of the Roman army in Pontius Pilate. Spectators line the city and even outside the city because it is a spectacle. It's shock and awe, to use military terms. It was a massive show of force. As one author said, it was a visual panoply of imperial power. They had a power that nobody else in the known in the ancient world could match at that time. And as Pilate came into Jerusalem, as he did every Passover, there were cavalry on horses, um, there were foot soldiers, there were leather armor they were wearing, they had helmets, weapons, banners, golden eagles mounted on poles, they had hundreds, if not thousands, of soldiers. They were beating drums. It was quite an array of power. In light of that, here's why they did it. All thoughts of resisting Rome and its power should be seen as futile. Revolt was to be viewed as suicidal. Dreams of independence should be crushed. Hope was detoured. And writing up at the beginning of that whole parade or that procession was Pontius Pilate on a, a war horse, flanked by imperial might because he represented Rome. You look at him and you would have to say, he is not a king worthy of our worship and our adoration. Perhaps, not for sure, but on the other side of the city on the same day, on the east side of the city, on the Mount of Olives was a different kind of king in a different kind of kingdom, a different kind of peace that was being offered that day. And in rode Jesus, the king. But he didn't ride in on a war horse. He wasn't accompanied by military power. He wasn't flanked by soldiers. See, he rode in on a donkey. He rode in on what the Bible says in Luke in our text. It was a colt. It is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. 9 which says, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. Jesus was fulfilling prophecy. And like Solomon, who was, his name means shalom or peace, he was the prince of peace. And as First Kings tells us, when David had him anointed, he rode in on a mule, a donkey, because he was a king of peace. 
Jesus came into the city that day and was unashamed finally to declare that he was king. He was royal requisitioning an animal because animals were always at the use and the beck and call of a king who was royal. And so he had it set up that day that he would ride in to make a statement that he wasn't a king like Caesar, he wasn't like Pontius Pilate, and he was bringing peace, a different kind of peace, that was not like anything that they had ever heard of or thought of. And he rides in on this donkey, and there's a phrase I want to spend a little time on this morning that's a little different than what you've normally heard on Palm Sunday. And that's the phrase in chapter 19 and verse 30, if you look there. It says, the donkey was on which no one had ever yet sat. Now, I don't know if you know much about animals or donkeys or horses, but what happens to you if you jump on a horse or a donkey that's never been broken? When I was about 14, we went on a vacation, and my dad was from Texas, and he somehow being born and raised there and living his life there, he always saw himself, although he was an executive for an oil company, he really thought that he missed his calling, that he should have been a cowboy. I, I don't really know why, he wore cowboy boots and all kinds of stuff. He had a little bit of a southern accent still, and so he kind of fit it, but not really. But he wanted to dream, and it was kind of his fantasy. So we took a vacation to, back then, I don't even know if they still do this, it was a dude ranch. And I felt like a dude that week because it was weird out there. But anyways, we all had, he, my dad made us wear all, we had to wear cowboy boots, which the, the things, the toe, I don't get to how that works, but... Anyways, but we had to go, and we had horses, and we had to get up on a horse. Now, they had a horse, and I, you know, unless you've ever ridden a horse, you don't realize how big and huge they are. So you got close to a horse, and I really wasn't too excited about it. Um, but of course, I was a dude that week, and that's what dudes did. And so I got on a horse, and it, it didn't like me, and we had trail things, and it was always turning its head, trying to bite my leg. I'm thinking, and this is a good horse? And we paid money for this. But you know, one of the key things I did see, it was really cool that week, was they had Bucking Billy. Bucking Billy was a horse that had not been broken. And they had the guy that was the, I, I guess the chief dude that week was out there, and he was the one that was going to, you know, break it. And th that thing, you couldn't even get close to it without it kicking and jumping and making all kinds of noise and all. It was terrible. But I remembered Bucking Billy, and I'm thinking as I'm reading this text this week, Jesus is going to sit on a donkey, not as big, still wild animal, that's never been sat on before. And I'm thinking, how is that possible? How can, and listen, so the Bible says he sat on top of this donkey and he rode this donkey through a screaming crowd. They're all chanting. They're all yelling. There's people, and they're doing stuff right in front of this donkey. They're, riding, they're putting their coats down. They're doing the palm branches. They're screaming. There's hundreds of people, and he's riding downhill. And I'm thinking, how in the world is this donkey cold, cal calm at all? In fact, one commentator said, how can this be happening? In the midst of an excited crowd, an unbroken animal remains calm. You know what's going on? It's very important. Why do animals not like it when human beings jump on top of them? Why do animals have to be broken? Why do donkeys, horses, and the like, why do they, they don't want you on their back. Why? There's only one word, fear. See, they're afraid of us. Now, if you have a pet at home, and we happen to have two cats, how many have dogs? 
We'll have an invitation at the end of the service. You can come forward. But. How many have cats? God's elect. Yes, thank you. All right. But if you have a cat or a dog, you'll know this, that they get used to you. They, they trust you. When I come up, you know, get up in the morning, go downstairs, my cats will run to me. They'll rub against your leg. And then you walk by and they flop on the ground and they go like this, you know. Normally they would let no one touch their stomach, which they're, you know, very vulnerable part. And they let you do all that stuff, you know. We had the young couples over part of the uh, progressive dinner last night and we had one part of the meal. And they came in and one of the young couple, you know, they came in and they started to go after our Jack, our cat. And Jack was, you know, not happening. And then, and then he got on the ground, he looked back and he hissed at her. And then he didn't know where to go. He was going like this, he knew where to go. I opened the, the uh, door to the basement and both my cats, whoop, right down the basement. They didn't want any part of those people. And they were afraid. They didn't know them. They didn't know how to trust them. See, dogs bark. They don't know people. You know someone's at the door. You, don't even, you didn't know they were coming, but the dog's barking. You know someone's there. Why? They're afraid. They don't know those people, right? That's how it works. You see, they set Jesus on it, and what happens? No jumping, right? No bucking, no trying to bolt for it. But Jesus doesn't have to break it. The little colt is fearless in the face of a screaming crowd. Why? Because Jesus is in the saddle. Because Jesus brought peace to this little colt. See, Jesus is sitting on top of it, and the colt submits to the control of the king, not because he had to be broken by force, but because he knew the peace that only the king can bring. Can I say to you this morning, when Jesus is the ruler of your life, he doesn't have to break you like the Romans. He doesn't have to come into your life and just threaten you and use force. And if you don't do this, I'm going to do this to you. See, that's not how it has to work with King Jesus. When Jesus is the ruler of your life, he can transform you by calming all your fears and in their place, giving you a peace. See, the gospel of King Jesus comes into someone's life, perhaps like some of you need this morning here. And here's what he says to you. What are you afraid of? I wrote down this morning, to the degree that I have Jesus at the center of my life is to the degree I am free from the fears of everything. See, there are some of you this morning who now are or have been afraid of death. You're afraid that what's going to happen when you die, you're not sure where you see, you're going to spend eternity. And I have talked to people, and it's petrifying. It actually is. To lay your head down on the pillow every night, not knowing if you're going to wake up and open your eyes, and if not, where you would be is not a way that you want to live your life. Jesus, through the gospel, comes into a person's life, and you know what he does? He takes the fear of death and replaces it with life. His life. And that life gives confidence and assurance that your sins are forgiven, that heaven is your home. See, he takes the fear of failure and all the what-if questions that you have. What if I don't make the grades to get into the school I want to attend? What if I don't get the job that I want? What if my career doesn't turn out? What if I don't find Mr. or Mrs. Right for my life? See, what if I don't have all the things that I'm planning take place? See, here's what Jesus says. When I'm the ruler of your life, failure and all your attempts at life is not what identifies or define you. It's me. I define your life. Success is now defined by me. The fear of criticism. What if my boss 
doesn't think that I'm as good as I want him to think? What if I get a negative comment on my performance annual review at the end of the year? What if, what if, what if? See, Jesus says, it's my acceptance that you're looking for. You think if your boss thinks this of you, or teenagers, your friends think this of you, or you, listen, if everybody said this of me, and everybody liked me, and I was really popular, and everybody, see, you're looking for acceptance and peace through it in a way that you'll never find it, he says. Because someone else is in control of your life. Someone else is really dominating your life. The fear of COVID, people are still afraid, getting sick in the hospital. See, when Jesus is sitting on the saddle of your life, see, if he is really in control, he'll bring a peace and he'll replace it with your fears. And let me tell you this, and you know how he does it? He doesn't break you. He allows himself to be broken for you. That's what he's saying. That's why he, why he rides in on a colt. You know, he's saying, I'm a different kind of king. I'm a humble king. I'm not going to force you. I want you to do it by faith. I want you to love me. See, when Jesus rides into your life, he says, I want absolute authority. I want absolute obedience. I want you to totally be committed to me above everyone and everything else. I want your loyalty. I'm worthy of your worship. See, but I want you to do it by faith. I want you to do it because you're going to learn to trust me to believe me when I say those things to you. Becky Pippert said about Jesus that he is the only one in the universe who can rule you without ruining you. See, everybody else wants to control you for their own reasons, and if you follow them far enough and long enough, they'll ruin you, but not King Jesus. See, everyone in this room this morning is controlled by someone or something Whatever you give your life to is really controlling you. Whatever rules you is what you're living for, whether it's the approval of people, whether it's success at your job, whether it's material possessions, whether you're a teenager and you want that guy or that girl to like you, whether it's people who are addicted to sexual pleasure, whatever you're living for will control you. And see, here's the message of the text. See, only Jesus can ride you without breaking you because he instead himself was broken for you. Well, Pastor Walker, what does that mean? Well, verses 36 and 37 says, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. See, Luke doesn't say anything about palm branches. He doesn't say they cut them down. He doesn't say he put them down there. So I'm thinking it says they put their cloaks down. So at Faith Baptist Church from now on, we're not going to do Palm Sunday. We're going to do Cloak Sunday. That's not going to go over, is it? But that's Luke's version. Luke says he put their clothes, their cloaks, they took off their garments and they put them on the ground in front of them. And the reason they did it because they're Jewish and they know the scriptures. And that's how Jehu, when he was the anointed king, that's how he came in. The Bible says that he came in on a donkey and everybody put their garments down, 2 Kings 9, 13, and they put it down before him because when you did that, you are doing this. You are publicly recognizing that he is the king and you are submitting to him and saying, you're worthy of my allegiance. You're worthy of my worship. That's what they did for Jehu. See, people were welcoming Jesus in. They wanted him to be the new king. It was a public show of their submission and their loyalty to him. There are a lot of Greek words in the New Testament for when you spread things out. But there's only one word in the Greek New Testament for spreading out garments 
as an act of honor and homage to a ruler and king, and that is the one used in this text. But verse 37 says, here's why they did it. For they had seen the mighty works that he had done. Very, very few days earlier, he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. You can't get much more mighty than that. And Jesus had power. He could raise people from the dead. They had seen it. And they said, look, he can do. Look what he can do. He can do this for us. The power he has. He can make all of our dreams come true. All of our expectations can be fulfilled in Jesus. He has the power. And so you know what they do? They lay their garments down in front of Jesus. And they're saying, Jesus, be our king. Use your power to do what we want you to do. You know what that is? That's not making Jesus king. That's them being king and wanting Jesus to use their power for them. So when they take their garments off, you know what they're really saying? You be the kind of king that we want you to be. You use your power for the things that we want you to do to make our lives better according to us. They are projecting their desires onto Jesus when they lay down their garments. Does it not surprise you now that the last paragraph of our text, when Jesus finally gets to the city and he looks out and he starts to cry over it. Why? Isn't this the happy day? Isn't this the day that he's been waiting for? Isn't this the climax that his whole life has been pointing to? Yes. And when he gets there, he weeps over the city. Two times in scripture, Jesus cried. Lazarus's tomb and this one. Jesus's tears are special. And you know why he's weeping? He's weeping because there are a boatload of people filled the city, 300 and some thousand people representing the nation, and they think that he's king, but they're not accurate. They don't understand. They have a misconception of what he really is like, and it's going to ruin them. See, they don't want Jesus riding them. They want to ride Jesus. See, they want to sit in the saddle. They want control. And the Bible says, would that you would have known this day the things that make for peace, the things. See, it wasn't horses, but it was donkeys, and they didn't know it. It was not cutting off the enemy, but being cut off by the enemy. See, they didn't know it. It was not laying down their garments for him that would bring their peace. It was him laying down his garments for them. Luke uses the same word for garment that the people laid down in front of Jesus. He also uses it in chapter 23 and verse 34, fulfilling the Psalm 22:18, which says, and they cast lots for my garments. You see, they had it all wrong. They thought that they just had a public display of their submission and laid their garments down for him and welcomed him as the kind of king they wanted, that all their life would be great and they'd finally have the peace. But they were so wrong because it wasn't their garments being taken off for Jesus, but his being taken off for them that would make the difference. See, when they took off their garments for him, they were saying, this is the kind of king you should be. Have you ever said that to Jesus? See, we come to church and we make a public show and as it were, we take off our garments and we worship him and we raise our hands and we sing songs. And you know what we're saying? Oh, Jesus, I worship you. Be the king I need. 
You be the king that does this for me. And we have our list, don't we? And they had theirs. Save us from our enemies, but not from our sins. Transform our lives externally, but don't get too much involved in the internal. See, sit on the saddle of my situation, but not on the saddle of my soul. See, change everything around me, but don't touch anything within me. Because we know what kind of king we want you to be, and we'll take off our garments to prove it. See, that's what they were saying. But on that day on a rugged hill called Calvary, Jesus took off his garments, and they cast lots for them. And you know what he was saying? He was saying, this is the kind of king I am. I'm a king who dies for you so that you can live, not the other way around. He says, I offer you peace, but not a horse peace, a donkey peace, a humble peace, a cross peace, a bloody peace, a sacrificial peace, not the world's peace, not Russia, Ukrainian peace, but Jesus' peace. See, he's worthy, like Aragorn, he's worthy of all of your worship. He's worthy of all of your loyalty. But see, you have to be able to see it. He is your king. The question is, will you crown him as such? You can't read this text, right? You can't read this text and not say that Jesus says two things to us this morning. He says this, either crown me or condemn me. There is no middle ground. Either I will be the kind of king I really am in your life or you will spend your life without peace trying to make me a king that you can control when I should be controlling you. See, we need to lay down our garments, but in a whole different way. When we lay down our garments, we need to say, Jesus, here's my life. Take all of it. Not just my destiny that when I die, I go to heaven. Oh, no, 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 more than that. Every single day, I want you to control my life. Take over my life. Take over everything. See, he wants to ask you this morning, will you crown me or condemn me? But either way, I am king. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around this morning, hail Jesus. He is the king. Your response this morning to be polite doesn't change that one iota. But in his kindness and his grace and his love and mercy, he is riding into Faith Baptist Church this morning with the same offer he offered to his people, Jerusalem, 2,000 years ago. Will you crown me king? Not your kind of king, but the king I truly am. See, there is peace on heaven, in heaven and on earth, and you can have it. In the midst of screaming crowds, you can be completely calm and peaceful, not because your situation is better, but because your soul is better, because King Jesus rules there. Is he your king today? Perhaps with everyone, their head bowed and eyes closed, you'd say, Pastor Walker, I'm religious. I'm Lutheran, I'm Methodist, I'm Baptist, Episcopalian, Catholic. I know about him. I know he's king. I've even worshipped him at such. But the truth is, he's not king in my life. Not really. 
Oh, I've done the public laying down of the garments, but it's never been, it's not personal, it's not really true, not the way it should be in my life. I just don't know, and so I do fear death. I I fear failure. I fear so many things because so many things other than Jesus control my life, but I love to give him my life today. I need his forgiveness. His cross, death, and resurrection is my only hope. Pray for me, Pastor Walker, that I would make Jesus the true king and Lord of my life this morning. Would you just raise your hand, and I'll pray for you as we close in a moment. Just slip your hand up and say, Pastor Walker, thank you, thank you. Someone else. I need to let go because I've been king and it's not working. Jesus is king and I need him desperately. Anyone else? Perhaps you're a Christian here this morning and you know him and you have crowned him but you have a problem because you keep pushing him off the throne because you like to sit there yourself and you really can't find the peace that you're looking for even as a Christian because he's not really controlling and ruling your life as he ought to. If you're a believer this morning, say, Pastor Walker, please pray for me. I need to give Jesus everything, not just some things, but everything, that his shalom can rule my life. Here's my hand, pray for me. Would you do that all over the auditorium? Thank you, thank you. Balcony, thank you. Anyone else? Father, in the royal name of Jesus, I ask that the King would come today and He would move in hearts through His Word and Holy Spirit to change and transform lives, not to break in pieces, but to put them back together. Jesus, I pray for those who raise their hand who need You as their Lord and Savior. I pray yet even today they might find peace by seeking Jesus, having someone take the Scriptures and show them how they can have eternal peace and forgiveness of sins in his great name. And for those who raise their hand as believers, Lord, may you give them grace every day to submit their lives in its entirety to you that they might be wholly yours. And we'll praise you for all that you're pleased to accomplish. For we ask it in King Jesus' name. Amen.